The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Mustafa Chowdhury. Mustafa, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? As you got involved, interested in financial markets? And what are you currently doing with MacroHive? Thanks, Michael. I am with MacroHive. It's an organization that has clients around the world, mostly advising on macroeconomic issues, both for developed and developing countries, as well as market colors. All our clients are mostly institutional clients that are very knowledgeable about what's happening. I have about 30 years experience in fixed income and macro investing and research. I have most recently been before Macro Hive was a head of interest rates, just as well as FX for the G10 markets, as well as portfolio manager for global bond portfolios. Prior to that, I have been a Deutsche Bank head of U.S. interest rates and MBS strategy. And prior to that, I have been in various roles, including at Freddie Mac, managing the hedging book. So about 30 years in fixed income, both on the research side and the portfolio management side. Right. So, so you and I both know fixed income isn't exactly the most exciting part of the investment landscape, except for last year, you can argue. Are you, do you get increasingly more excited about the fixed income space given the massive sell-off that we saw last year, or is it still, you know, probably relatively boring asset class? It's never been boring for me, Michael. In the last 30 years, it's been... It's actually a way more exciting sector than people initially think. But when Fed is in action, it gets even more exciting than when Fed is out of the picture. We fence hiked 525 basis points or 5.25% in a very short period of time. That hasn't happened anytime since the late 70s and early 80s. So it's exciting. No question about it. But also the sizes, the sizes of each hike is historic. We had multiple 75 basis point hikes last year. When I first started in this business, right after in 1994, Fed did a 175 basis point hike. And that created havoc across the fixed income world. We had Orange County getting in trouble. We have many hedge funds were in trouble as well. 
And now we have multiple 75 basis point hikes and we are not seeing significant trouble across various sectors of the financial system. So, but there's a, uh, whatever is happening, the anticipation and fear is kicking in. So definitely exciting now. Maybe less exciting than 2008 crisis. Well, okay. So this is actually that, that's where the word crisis is always exciting. <laughs> okay. So let's, <laughs> let's play with that point about, yeah, which has been 70 times before everyone knows that, you know, you've never seen speed like this, certainly coming off of, you know, the zero bounds. Yeah. There's that line that interest rates work with long and variable flags. And to your point, consumers are still looking strong and it seems like nothing has quite broken just yet. But that could be because we haven't seen the full impact from a lagged perspective on the economy. So given your experience in the fixed income space, first of all, do you think that the the lags in terms of the economy and the interest rate environment, has it shortened over time? And if it has, do you suspect that we're about to see more fireworks beyond what we've seen with the regional banks? Michael, the lag is... Lag is still there and it could be 12 months, maybe uh, historically it's been 12 months, sometimes as long as 24 months. So we're still and waiting for the full effect to play out in the, in the economy. But there is something so that's multiple times in the hikes and eases. We have seen the lag effect, but it's not just a lag effect. This time that there's something new. That's market is learning and Fed's learning, and which is the PAP dependency, which basically means that the Fed kept interest rate at zero for more than 10 years, changed a lot of things in the economy structure. And so hiking after many, many years of zero interest rate has a different effect than just hiking off immediately after a lot of easing. So those structural changes are also getting gradually reflected and understood by the economy. So there's a lot to come. The structural change part, as well as the lag effect of policy into the economy, as well as in the market. But the market tends to, market tends to respond a little sooner, even if the economy responds slower than this time around. This time as market is fighting the Fed, than more than I've ever seen before. Okay, so so that's interesting, but I think we should define the, in quotes, the market, which I think is kind of how the challenge this year. So there's the market, meaning the S&P, which, you know, right now I'd argue is actually not the market because of the concentration of what's driving the performance, largely around the AI narrative. There's the, every other part of the market, right, right which is small caps, saving its sense of consumers, which admittedly, you know, really isn't done all that much this year. Very kind right. of deceptive and then I'd argue the other market, which probably has been the most perplexing is, for lack of a better way of saying it, the market of credit spreads, right? Because you haven't really had any kind of meaningful default risk. So when you talk about the idea that the market hasn't responded, which market is the one that needs to respond the most? Firstly, the treasuries. The treasuries, if you see the yield curve, it's extremely inverted, and especially between the, uh, the front end, the three-month rates and the uh, two-year, three-year rates. Uh, it's almost like a hockey stick. And historically, if you have this much inversion, it basically predicts a serious recession. But we have had inverted yield curve, very inverted yield curve for the last almost a year now, and we see no sign of recession. So that's number one. The hikes are constantly under predicted by the market. Market keeps thinking that the Fed's going to 
ease or stop hiking, and the Fed keeps coming back and hikes. So that's one. The basic underlying treasury market is fighting the Fed more than it has in the past. Then you got the credit market. You, if you look at the investment grade credit, the high yield, in after so much hike, you would see both high yield and investment grade to be significantly wider and more volatile than before. But it's just not only that the spreads are unusually tight, but also they're not very volatile. It's not moving around as much as it should be. And I think the your point about the equity market is also correct that the big tech is driving driving the the S and B, and it could be because of the AI story, etc. It could also be that the big tech is the most sensitive to interest rates, and it, the curve being inverted has a disproportionate effect on big tech relative to the rest of the economy, the rest of the market. So all of that seems like not pricing high as much as you would expect the effect of hikes from history. Do you get a sense that if, if the Fed, even if it temporarily paused but then kind of restarted hiking, that it would be the same response by the bond market in terms of it representing a sell-off in duration or rather a, a sell-off in junk debt, right? Because that's been... I've made this point before. It's like, it's only a matter of time until the duration crisis becomes a credit crisis. But yeah, admittedly, I've been wrong so far on the timing of that. So duration is very interesting. I'll shed a little bit of light on what's going on with duration in the system. So there is a sum total of duration in the markets based on how much bond is outstanding and who owns it, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at who owns duration in the U.S. market, mainly from Let's say the treasuries, and we can talk about spread products a little later, or treasuries on MBS. So a big chunk of it is owned by the Federal Reserve. So Federal Reserve owns about two and a half trillion dollars of MBS, and then a similar amount, actually way more, double that amount of treasuries. So all of the duration is held by the Federal Reserve, which is sort of like a government, so it doesn't feel the pain of higher interest rates. So you got those guys and Federal Reserve is unable to unload any of the mortgages because no one's prepaying or refinancing their mortgages. So they're just sitting on this. And the other chunk of duration is held by the American banking system, which is about two and a half trillion, another two and a half trillion of MBS, which is very high duration now. And historically high amount of treasuries, about the same size. And that has a lot of durations. As well. And then they have duration embedded in their loan books. Everything has duration in it, whether some credit cards have some duration and everything has duration. So the banking system is holding on to a lot of duration. Fed's holding on to a lot of duration. And on the flip side, the American consumer is a very short duration rather than long. So this whole higher interest rates is not affecting or hurting the households because the households are short duration and higher interest rates is actually helping the households. So the households, despite all these hikes, are really solid. And so they, they keep consuming their higher interest rates are not hurting consumption. That U.S. consumption is very solid as well. So duration risk right now is not hurting, actually helping 
homeowners. In the long run, though, it might not be because we got five and a quarter percent and that's households are feeling better off given that the short duration. But when it's, they come back, they take a pause for a few months and they come back, start hiking and it goes to 6%, 7%. Who knows? You know, our economist is calling 8%. So every successive increases in interest rates is different from the previous increase in interest rates. So the, we're going to start to see non-linearities of Fed hike, the effect of Fed hikes into the banking system as well as the rest of the economy, which essentially means that we'll see a shedding of duration by banks and shedding of durations with other players like non-bank, non-bank financial institutions, etc. And eventually we'll start to see the, the inversion of the curves reverse even without a recession in the economy. So how, under the non-linearity point that you mentioned, how would it affect different banks? Yeah, the people will laugh when I say that the regional bank crisis, I, I put it in quotes, that crisis I, I'd argue was maybe a bit manufactured and that it wasn't as bad as the headlines made it out to be. But that's typically what happens in, in run the banks, right? It's, you know, any kind of narrative ends up causing kind of a rush to the door. But under that scenario of that nonlinearity, how did the larger bank, which I think is the real point of, of trust, how would they respond right. like, compared to the regionals? The larger banks, the deposits are, so at the end of the day, it's the duration of your liability side of your balance sheet and the duration of the, the asset side of your balance sheet. At the larger banks, the, what we have seen is the liability side of their balance sheet, which is mainly the deposits are pretty robust. Actually, they're getting additional, additional deposits into their system. So I think the, mismatch between duration of the liability side and the asset side of the large four or the large 10, at least the large five of the banking system is a little bit more matched. And I think the non-linearity will affect them less. Then you got the mid-sized banks out there where there is a significant duration gap between assets and liabilities. And these are 200, 100 to 400 billion dollar size balance sheet. These guys looks like they have weathered. Well, three of them were in trouble and already unwound, etc. But the others are seems like they have weathered the crisis. But I don't think. Oh well, they have weathered it for today's interest rates. And but if we get 200, another 100 to 300 basis point hikes. These guys, the, the asset liability mismatch will hurt them. So that's the, that's what I'm watching a lot for some of these middle sized banks that have done survive very well, the heights so far, but uh, will be stressed if the interest rate goes to six, seven or even eight percent. Cause we don't know the good picture of their balance sheet because the Fed has never done an operate stress test, especially on these guys. So we, I'm a little apprehensive about the mid-sized bank. And then if you got the small, many small banks scattered around the country, those would be also in the limelight in as the, because they are all dependent on the loan, the, they usually take deposits from small time, small town businesses 
and lend to the small town businesses. And so that business appears solid, but in reality, not as solid because a lot of small banks where they should just be lending to small businesses. Instead, they also loaded up on agency MBS and treasuries and starting to face some duration risk pressure. So small banks are not as safe as that as they appear. What's going to be the implication on, on consumers there? I think we can debate about the surprising strength of consumers in general, but presumably with every credit contraction, consumer spending, you know, ends up taking a, a hit, right? So how important is that dynamic to just ongoing spending patterns? I think that the U.S. consumers are in, in a generally good shape, at least in the sense of the trans, monetary policy transmission that used to happen in the past. Consumers would be hurt by this time and with so much increases in the Fed funds rate because their financing would be going up, credit card rates, all of these would be going up. But this time around, I think consumers are very resilient and not to be immediately hurt. It's really slow to directly affect the consumers. I think consumers would be affected in indirect ways and it will take a little bit of time. So first would be, as we will see, and you will, if you look at bank by bank data, you won't see it in the macro data yet. And small banks will be starting to cut lending to small businesses. And the only place you see that now in the macro sense is if you look at the small business optimism data or small business loan data, not the Fed data, but NFIB type data, you'll see the small, ba- small businesses are starting to, started to face some credit tightening. So small businesses are a significant source of employment in the U.S. So the indirect way the consumers will be hurt is through small businesses starting to let people go. That's when you will see, because of the tightening of credit that's available to them from the small banks, that you will see consumers will be indirectly affected through credit to small businesses, through their jobs, as opposed to directly affected by credit availability for their consumption activities. So that's number one. Sometimes it's going to be a little longer this time around for consumers to be hurt by the hikes. The other way the consumers will be hurt by the hikes, and that's we are also seeing it in in the rental market that the because the interest rates are so high, it's impossible for anyone to contemplate buying homes at least the new home buyers or those who already don't own a home. And so the rental is going up very fast. And if you look at the aggregate numbers, it's 30 plus percent increase since the pandemic level. That's huge. Well, because the shelter cost is about 30% of American, one third of American households consumption. And that's on average nationally gone up by more than 30%. But in some states, it's gone up by outrageous levels, like Florida is 56% higher than pre-pandemic level. So the consumers that are lower in the income level and consumers that don't own a home are going to get hurt by the amount of money they have to spend on their rental. And so they will have less consumption, less available for consumption as well. So those are the two indirect effects on consumption 
slightly different from the way it used to be when consumers had a lot of leverage in directly affecting consumption, which they don't have this time. I don't know whether I articulated this difference from the past, but this could mislead the Fed in the sense that they may think consumers are very strong, but they are strong, but slowly, slowly getting hurt. Yeah. And then it's like that old line, yeah, slowly, then all of a sudden. So as consumers, right, yeah. suddenly start seeing that the, the rental prices keep rising year after year after year and their wages aren't keeping up and suddenly they start pulling back on at the margin, going out to eat and vacations and all the discretionary spending that, you know, has been the bull argument. Suddenly that conceivably could cause a real significant disinflationary demand pull driven decline. That's correct. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. That's exactly correct. It's just, and then the other thing that might be a little bit of puzzling from the policy point of view, historically, we just look at the change. And if you look at the Zillow.com, Zillow.com gives you a very good idea about current snapshot because CPI is sort of lagged of the rental, rental situation. The current, the level of increase in rent is really high. And if you don't look at the level and you keep looking at the changes, changes could be misleading. It's If I am a renter, I am still hurt by how much it has gone up from pre-COVID levels, Not may not be as much as month-to-month changes of it. And that's changes matter when you have uniform changes. But if there is a massive change in the level, then level matters as well. And so the Fed may see month-to-month changes kind of still high, but not outrageous. But the consumers, is, consumers are feeling more hurt than the data economists are seeing in their data. And so that's another thing new, I think, at this time around than in the past. And actually, so I'd argue that from that standpoint, it would make sense that you would have even the stock market itself not have sustained secular breaths, right? Because if we're talking about consumers, small caps are much more sensitive to consumer than multinational large caps. Retailer stocks are obviously much more sensitive to consumers. So the areas which need the pure participation of the number of spenders, as opposed to kind of the high ticket items, they would continue to languish fundamentally because they're competing against landlords effectively. I totally agree with you, Michael, on this. That's why we're seeing the equity market seem to be separating between highly interest rate sensitive sectors like tech, big tech, et cetera, and that, that are also very sensitive to innovation, et cetera. And so it's separating, but the breadth of the market could feel the, uh, feel the short. Let me explain it the, a little bit more. The big tech is very sensitive to long-term interest rates because it's the long-term cash flows 
and not the net of cash flows that matter for them. So the fact that the curve is very inverted is helping big tech a lot. But the, the, all the breadth of the market, which is the small companies, the, that are both sensitive to inflation as well as sensitive to interest rates. Those guys depend a lot on the front end of the yield curve as well. And those guys will, there's, will start to see, and we're already seeing this difference that the stock market is driven by few companies that are sensitive to the very low interest in the long end and very sensitive to tech innovation. The rest of the market is kind of hanging around in the same place. Yeah. So that's the, yes, it's a reflection of the macros. Right. No, exactly. Right. And, that, and that's why I go back to, I, I have, from a trading perspective, yeah, the narrative is breadth is going to widen out. This is short-term, right, market dynamics. Breadth's going to widen out. That's going to drive the equity market higher. Now, all, all that could be true from a trading perspective, but from a secular perspective, all these are massive headwinds, which either means you're going to have, you know, a kind of continuation of the bifurcation of large versus small, which has all kinds of other implications, or that driving a recession, being a leading indicator, because at some point uh, all this, you know, stops. What reverses some of these dynamics? What would it take to to get rent prices to go down? I mean, even if you had more housing inventory, I, I rarely hear stories of rent prices dropping in general in any point in time in history. It's a, it, that's a, I'm, I'm not seeing it in the near future because if you look at the jobs, even in the job market, people who are losing their job are more in tech sector, et cetera, which are highly paid highly paid jobs. But if you look at the new jobs being created in the very low income sector, like restaurants and leisure activities, there does the salaries, the wages are really low. And that's where still jobs are being created in actually very large amounts. So these are the guys who rent. And so the renter part of the, the, the whole universe of households are increasing on, from the demand side. From the supply side, we see the single family home, new construction has started to slow down, but multifamily new construction is still going on robust. So you hope that the supply, you're going to get supply of apartment keep coming online. But even there, if you look at the permit application for multifamily in the apartment complex, the permits have actually been slowing down. So whether the su- supply, which one is going to be faster? Well, the multifamily construction at some point will slow down. It's not slowed, da- slowed at all. It's actually going pretty fast. will slow down at some point. So the demand is going up as well. So no, I'm not saying in the next six months to a year, a significant decline in the rental market. Just because the nature of the jobs that are being created are typically for renters as well. And then remember the, the multifamily market is also increasingly helped out by the government as Freddie Fannie have invested a lot in apartments than they have in the past. Just to again reset the room remaining minutes over, please make sure you follow Mustafa Chowdhury here on Twitter. And if you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. I'm curious to hear your take on how all that interacts with the thing everybody loves to talk about, which is recession or no recession, just like everyone was talking about last year. Seems like every single day that goes by, the narrative changes. You know, you started off the year with people saying recession would hit second half of the year. 
now a lot of people are saying uh, that's not going to be the case and they're actually raising, you know, at least at the big banks, their S&P targets. What if people gotten right and wrong about the timing of a recession and is it going to eventually come or what? First, need the economist and then I'll tell you the bond, the bond market. Economists have been more wrong about payroll data in the last 15 months in a row. They have been under predicting the payroll than I, think, I don't think ever in history. So economists have been blindsided by this particular hiking cycle than ever before because jobs are growing way faster than economists forecast. So you got that group wrong, persistently wrong. And then the market, which is supposed to be smart and that we don't see that either because that yield curve is predicting recession for the last one year and we don't see any recession yet. To us, to me, I think that the big mistake that's the big source of this error is me not understanding the effect of 10 years of 10 years or more like 12 years of zero interest rates and how this has structurally changed our system and how the sensitivity to Fed hikes have changed. It's blindsided economists. It blindsided the market as well. So I've never seen the yield curve mispredict recessions so much. So in my opinion, because consumers will be slow to respond to the hike, we are not going to see recession this year. And it will be a longer process than we have seen before. Eventually, there will be. Depends on how far the Fed hikes. The Fed will be facing a dilemma very soon, which is, will they have... Will they come back and start hiking again in July or the September or some somewhere this year? And I think they will have to come back and hike later in the year, even if they take a pause or pause that they're talking about in the tomorrow, uh, this week, I think they will take a pause, but they will come back to hike. But they will face a dilemma, as I said, that the non-linearity will start to kick in after the Fed, the interest rate goes from 5% to 6% to 7%. And that non-linearity will have unexpected effects on asset prices as well as in the, in the banking system that we still don't understand. So uncertainty will go up in successive hikes. And so the Fed will have the huge dilemma about market volatility versus, versus inflation going forward because inflation is still very robust and they will have to choose between market volatility or market instability and inflation way more stark choice than it was before. But recession is not there. I don't think you're really going to see a recession in the next six months. I think I know the answer to this, but why is that the dynamic, to your point about that 10 years of zero trade policy or whatever the number of you know years is, why is it that dynamic is different in the West versus when it comes to Europe, for example? I mean, the Eurozone is, you know, in, in a technical recession, I believe, currently, and their monetary policy is largely followed hours correct we'll be back after a quick break foodies unite with how you dish it's social media with a secret sauce food the world's first network for food enthusiasts how you dish connects foodies across the world share kitchen tips and recipe hacks discover hidden gem food joints and street food find foodies like you connect chat and organize meetups how you dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world so how do you dish download how you dish on the apple app store now 
So a couple of reasons. One is consumers are a much bigger part of the economy in the U.S. as opposed to Europe. And in terms of the consumers, well, their home is really important in the U.S. And this time around, we haven't been able to, our Fed haven't been able to crack, make a crack into the homeowner's wealth. And homeowners actually feel way richer than they were, they were in the before. And the lock-in effect of their mortgages, which is locking, having locked into a two and a half or three percent mortgage when the current mortgage rate is closer to mid sixes or sometimes seven percent, makes them not only not move around, but also feel much richer than ever before. So every successive rate hikes and this, all, this is because of this years of zero interest rate and ability for the totality of the American households that own homes to have that lock-in effect that is not present in Europe. So that's a big, big driver of not being able to crack into the American households wealth level or the feeling of wealth. And so we are not getting recession through the consumer channel. The other reason, and that could be a negative one, which is the Fed has been doing QE in astronomical sizes and using that extra reserves that they have pumped into the banking system instead of keeping the reserves as liquid assets in the, in their balance sheet. American banks basically went out there and used up that reserves in taking more risk, mostly by lending more or taking a lot of duration risk. So the Fed is incapable of reducing their balance sheet or doing much QT because again, something new that Fed's learning that it's not symmetric. You can do QE, but you cannot do QT. In fact, this time around, they will probably have to stop doing QE very soon. So, but net what it means is that the banking system is about, uh, let me first talk about what the European banking system, the European banking system, on the other hand, the ECB pumped a lot of money and all the different low regionals, the country, each central banks of each country pumped a lot of liquidity in their balance sheet. But the banking system in Europe did not use those reserves and just blown up their balance sheet, taking a lot of duration risk. And the reason for doing that is that Europe has a very tight uprate stress test that allowed, that forced banks not to take too much risk with the reserves. So it's a little bit more reversible QE versus QT. So we're not seeing that effect. In the US, the QT will not be able to, the Fed will not be able to do much Q, much QT much longer because banks have already taken a lot of uprate risk and consumed a lot of reserves. So that's another effect of the long-term zero interest rate and pumping a lot of liquid reserves into the system at zero interest rates. So those two big differences have made the U.S. economy more immune to hikes and the recession slower than in Europe. Also, Europe is being affected by energy prices and affected by China growth and the lack of China recovery than we have. Yeah, all that makes a lot of sense. Actually, I, I wanted to go in, in the direction of energy for a bit here, just talking about OPEC and cuts and 
you know, different dynamics there. Do you get a sense that OPEC can throw a real monkey wrench into the inflation discussion? I mean, yeah. if you were to have a resumption of oil prices rising to be another force for cost push inflation, that's going to probably break something when you already have much higher rates than you did the last time, you know, oil was higher. Yeah, I ponder about this. The, there is, of course, the China recovery. So we haven't seen the coming out of COVID. We saw a little bit of activities there, but then it seems to have faded out after the first quarter. So the expectation of oil price increase from China recovery, in my opinion, was much more or a bigger force than the cuts that the OPEC did. And so we are sort of kind of locked in a below $80 crude oil since the beginning of this year. And all these cuts really haven't had much effect on raising oil prices. They may be for a day, maybe 50 cents or a dollar, but it goes back lower. And that, you know, now it's like below 70, we're now at 67 and a half today. So if they keep cutting, the supply and it keeps going down because the China's recovery force is much, lack of recovery force is much more than the OPEC cuts. And it's possible that they are kind of circular. One decision is based on the other. Clearly, we, it's actually, we are actually lower than at the oil is at a lower level than where we were at the beginning of the war in Ukraine. And so even that effect has been pretty much eliminated. So I'm not sure OPEC matters as much as you hear in the headlines. I think the China recovery is what matters more for oil prices and subsequent effect on energy inflation. So in the context of everything that we, we hit on here, from an asset allocation perspective, not investment advice, but yeah, you know, where should investors be thinking about tilting or trimming given that expectation the rates will probably, you know, keep rising to your point and that we're not necessarily sort of out of the woods in terms of economic recession, even though it may not necessarily happen this year. A couple of big things that come to my mind. One of them is the market is persistently expecting lower inflation in the U.S. than it actually is are when the consumers think. If you look at the Michigan survey of consumers about one year ahead inflation, still at about four, more than 4%. While if you look at the inflation index bonds, it's significantly lower. It's like two something percent, two plus small chump change percent. So there is a disconnect between the kind of inflation that the homeowners are feeling, the American, typical American consumers are feeling, versus what the market is pricing. And so there is a, in my opinion, there is a trade there that inflation index bonds or products that will do well in a, in high inflation or persistent inflation is probably a good asset allocation. So chips, the medium maturity tips seems like a good, good sector. And definitely not, these are not investment advice, but this is just Thinking about it loud in terms of inflation, the fact that inflation seems to be consumers are feeling more inflation, as well as actual numbers coming out more than what the market is telling us or market is projecting. That's, there's a trade there. 
in terms of asset allocation. Then there is the others. The big theme is the American homeowners. American homeowners, if you look at the housing turnover rate, is moving less than ever. I think they, for a brief moments after 2008, that they moved or their housing turnover was less than what they have now. So they're not moving around. And they're not moving around because they have an amazing mortgage slot theme. But there is a natural amount of move that's supposed to happen in a big economy like big vibrant economy like us, where people move from north to south, east to west, you know, all these movements. And this whole decline in moves is gives you only one direction for future, which is people are gonna move around more than what they move now. And so that's one thing that I'm sort of pondering a lot about. What does it mean in terms of value? And I think the mortgages, U.S. mortgages, which is currently based on no movement or still turnover in housing, will have to perform well when homeowners start to move around some more and investors start to get, get higher interest on their mortgages than they are getting now which is now they're getting based on the zero interest scenarios from the past. And so that's, plus the United States government has implicit guarantee on the Freddie Family mortgages. So I like agency agency mortgages as a good long-term investors. Equities, I am not, this is, that's not my, that's not my forte. So you probably know, Michael, more than equities, but anything, any equities, uh, any sectors, that sort of relate to the what I was saying, that market's predicting less inflation than what consumers are stealing is tip number one. Tip number two, the Americans are going to move more than they are moving now because they're like stand still right now. And that's their, so think of equities based on that as well. Masab, how do people find some of your work? I am everywhere. I am on macrohigh.com is one place to find long pieces. I tweet. Often as well, you just mentioned my Twitter, uh, Chaudhry, M-U-S-T, in Twitter as well. And I'm often posting on my research on LinkedIn.com and various other social media. But Twitter is, I tweet often with my thoughts. So yeah, good place to wrap this Twitter space up. As always, I appreciate those that keep joining these conversations. Thank you, Mustafa. Appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.